Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 7th. It's State of the Union Day, President Biden's chance to get an audience bigger than those of you who watch MSNBC or CNN all the time, right? According to Variety magazine, the Super Bowl was the most watched show of 2022 with around 100 million viewers. Depends on how you calculate it. The NFL says 200 million, but we'll accept the first Nielsen number, 100 million viewers. The most viewed entertainment show was the Oscars at around 17 million, then the season finale of Yellowstone with around 13 million, and the State of the Union address last year, take your internal guesses, what's your over-under? It drew a little under 40 million people. Not too bad. Now, that's barely over 10% of the American population paying attention, but that's still the biggest news event audience of the year. And in historical context, um, it's still meh. The most watched State of the Union address ever, according to the Nielsen ratings, was Bill Clinton's just after his inauguration in 1993. You know, we just did that series on 1993. Did you hear that as a turning point? That was one reason why charismatic Bill Clinton had everybody paying attention, and it was a new era that America felt was dawning then after the Cold War and as the country was beginning to recover from the worst of a recession and of 1980s crime. 66 million people watched that State of the Union, more than half again as many as watched Biden last year. And as another footnote to history, just saying, Donald Trump claimed his 2018 State of the Union address was the most watched ever. It wasn't. Nielsen clocked that at around 46 million viewers, so 20 million less than Clinton's 66 million, which was the best ever, according to Nielsen. But we know that not coming in first never stopped Trump from saying he came in first. Maybe we'll call that the little lie a footnote to State of the Union history. But tonight, it's Joe Biden's third State of the Union address. We'll see who watches. But what does the president need to do tonight? Well, here's his former press secretary, Jen Psaki, on MSNBC this morning. Even if it's 40 million people watch it, which is less than the Super Bowl, but still that's a huge number of people. That's a big opportunity for any president. It's the biggest speech of the year any president gives. But what he needs to do is tell a story. Joe Biden is an amazing storyteller. I mean, you sit in the Oval Office, Kareem can tell you, and he can storytell for six hours. He needs to do that in the speech tonight. People aren't sitting at home and just like writing down data points, right? They 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 vote and they move, they, they support people who they feel something from. So so he needs to tell the story. 
He needs to tell the story. But with Democrats and Republicans alike in a pessimistic mood, according to the polls, and Biden's latest approval number at just 37 percent, what kind of story does he have that he can tell? Well, one thing we expect is for Biden to tout the economy, right, with the lowest unemployment rate since 1969, according to the numbers that came out on Friday. And the U.S. manufacturing sector, once more or less left for dead, Thank you, 1993, by the way, with Bill Clinton's NAFTA agreement and other forces. The American manufacturing sector is coming back with Biden-era laws, including the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. In fact, here's something that surprised me from this show yesterday, from our own show yesterday, that could even help Biden tell his story. Some of you heard our call in at the end of yesterday's show asking people if they recently got a job or recently lost a job. And we got this revealing call from Robert in Jersey City, who started by saying he had been laid off from his recruiter job in the tech sector. We know the tech sector is shrinking. But then he went on. I'm actually a tech recruiter. I work for a lot of great Fortune 500 companies, and there's a huge uh, you know, push in U.S. for, uh, you know, made in USA, right? So there's a lot of jobs in manufacturing. And I've actually, within the last one month, I've actually gotten three offers, all from the manufacturing sector instead of the software, which I'm part of. What a reversal compared to what we're used to, right? Lost his tech recruiter job got a manufacturing recruiter job as those sectors kind of switch places as what's growing, what's shrinking. The story of January 2023 in less than 30 seconds there. So let's preview the state of Joe Biden's union by talking about the state of Joe Biden's economy with Idris Kalun, Washington bureau chief for The Economist. One of their recent articles is called America's Government is Spending Lavishly to Revive Manufacturing. Idris, thanks so much for coming on on State of the Union Morning. Welcome to WNYC. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. First, can I get your reaction to that caller yesterday, Robert in Jersey City? Was he kind of an accidental focus group of one? No, I think I think that makes a very interesting point because, as you noted, uh, manufacturing jobs are up, so they hit their bottom uh, around 2010 um, at 11.5 million jobs. They've since gained about a million and a half, um, which is, uh, you know, a bit of a reversal. But what we see actually is that a lot of those jobs require uh, technical skills. They require college degrees, even though they are part of the manufacturing sector. Um, there is still a place for brawn in that sector, but a lot of it is computerized, a lot of it is automated, and the kinds of jobs that are being created require a certain set of, of STEM skills. And so in, in that way, I think that the focus group of one is actually quite revealing. But the article in The Economist about this um, starts at what we might think of as an old school location where mostly it was brawn, as you put it, doing the work. Uh, the article opens at a Ford Motor Company manufacturing complex called River Rouge near Detroit, and you describe what was happening there in the 1930s and then what's happening there today. You want to tell both of those stories a little bit? Yeah. So in, in the 1930s, uh, this complex outside of Detroit 
um, had roughly a hundred thousand people um, who were making cars, uh, you know, once a minute. Um, it was a huge enterprise, and you know, it was the heyday of of the American manufacturing sector. Is when Detroit was uh, the fourth largest city, was incredibly rich. All the Art Deco buildings that we see today uh, were being built, um, and we've all, you know, known about the. the the decline of Detroit since. But actually what's interesting is if you go back now, um, what you see is that is that this complex is now churning out um, electric F-150s. And, and my colleague who who wrote uh, that particular briefing uh, had a good time uh, taking it all the way uh, across <laughs> a few states. Um, and, you know, actually the issue was, was less the car, which worked fine, but, uh, the charging stations along, along the way. I was just going to ask, did he run out of charge before he found a charging station? They, yeah. So she went with, uh, with two, two colleagues and, uh, and they had to spend a very cold, uh, dinner outside of a supermarket while they waited for the, the car to charge up. Um, so, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the sector is, is changing, you know, if you go there. My colleague noted that, um, you know, you see the whirring of machines. You don't see the sort of legions of people uh, producing uh, cars like you had before. And what they're producing is, is fairly high quality. It's it's advanced. I mean, it's it's almost futuristic. Uh, but, you know, it is a very different kind of manufacturing. And it's one that the Biden administration is spending a lot of money trying to encourage at the moment. Right. And that gets to the heart of the article. One reason for the revival of River Rouge is lavish new tax credits people can get for buying American-made electric vehicles, for example. And I'm glad you told the story that way because I think the American-made part of that uh, sentence, American-made electric vehicles, tends to get lost in most of the media. What we hear a lot is about the tax credits themselves, right? In the context of trying to reduce climate change. We did a segment like that here last month as our climate story of the week one week. How are you trying to take advantage of those new green energy tax incentives for cars or things for your home or whatever? But if you buy an American-made electric car, you get more of a tax credit than a Japanese electric car or other import. Um, that's right. So the IRS has set up in, for the individual a $7,500 tax credit that you can receive for an electric car. Now, there are requirements on uh, precisely how much of that car needs to be made within America. Um, so a few automakers uh, whose supply chains don't run through America in quite the same way are a bit irate about that. Um, but to your point, I mean, this goes at you know, the central tension of the article that we try to explore, which is, you know, for the first two years that Biden had, that President Biden had unified control over Congress, he managed to pass quite a lot of legislation. Um, and a lot of that was geared towards spending um, and spending with a few aims. It was, you know, roughly $2 trillion uh, to be spent on semiconductor manufacturing, clean energy manufacturing, um, with the intent of revitalizing the sort of uh, American manufacturing sector, bringing people back to work, competing with China, and preparing the economy for this massive decarbonization that needed to happen. And it does that by relying in, in large part on these sorts of Buy America provisions, on domestic subsidies. And, you know, the, the argument the administration makes is that these subsidies will ultimately reduce the cost of providing clean energy of wind and solar innovation that can be transmitted to the rest of the world. 
the skeptical, pessimistic view on what this money might do is it might encourage, uh, you know, domestic giants that aren't that efficient, uh, that basically are able to subsist on on subsidies for a while, um, whereas the actual products that they produce are not going to be the sort of epoch changing uh, ones that we hope that they will be. So that is that is the big gamble that we are that we're writing about, um, and and that we're going to continue to write about. Also, this isn't our first uh, stab. We're going to mm-hmm. be spending much sure. of the year looking at this. Andres in Manhattan calling about the Chips Act. Andres, you're on WNYC. Hi there. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much. Um, I'm working in the education sector, and I uh, wanted to ask your guests about. Um, I think the the Chips Act is going to be impacting education enormously, in that uh, science, technology, engineer, uh, engineering, and mathematics majors, and both in high school and in community colleges and colleges, are going to be employable in these kinds of jobs, particularly in rural areas in upstate New York. Um, it's going to have a huge impact, and I wonder if uh, the your guest has any insight into that. Thank you. Idris? Um, yeah, thank you for, for that point. You know, I, I think, yes, these, these will create jobs that rely on training and STEM, but we already have a pretty sizable gap in terms of the number of jobs that require uh, training and STEM and our capacities to supply them. Um, I'm, I'm worried about um, learning in general. You know, over the pandemic, we had a significant amount of learning loss that we're just getting a sense of the scale of. And uh, a few months ago, we saw the release of NAEP scores, which are um, used to to assess uh, overall. Um, uh, sorry, I just got a call uh, that are that are used to assess overall performance. And we saw a, a pretty busy. sizable de- decline uh, um, in in terms of performance. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm worried about those things um, in addition to, uh, you know, what this might do for STEM. Um, so that's the point I make there. Which hopefully is short term after, you know, the remote learning era of the pandemic. But let me put this or ask you to put this into an maybe even larger context than we've been talking about, because one of the articles in The Economist um, that you sent us for this notes that the approach with these subsidies for manufacturing marks a major reversal from the U.S. government approach to economic success for the last 40 years. Free trade deals, low taxes, and relatively little regulation. And again, I'd say echoes of 1993 when Bill Clinton brought the Democrats on board with what had been more of a Republican approach described that way and made it bipartisan. So how much does Bidenomics actually represent a really epical end of an era in the Democratic Party. I, I think it does. You're exactly right. I think it does encapsulate this turn away from the third way centrism of Bill Clinton that relied on liberalized trade agreements and low taxes and low regulations. And what's interesting is that what Bidenomics is, and I don't think people appreciate it quite as much, is that in some ways it's a con- continuation of Trumponomics. Um, you know, Biden has kept the same level of tariffs on China as as Donald Trump did. Um, he also thinks that uh, it, the decline of manufacturing is a problem. He's skeptical of free trade agreements, all things that the two presidents who have a lot of differences um, share. 
So, you know, this idea that buying America, uh, buying American um, is the way forward is actually one that's that's shared by people across the political spectrum. You know, people like Josh Hawley um, and Marco Rubio on the Republican side are uh, increasingly interested in industrial policy. Um, Donald Trump kept saying that he wanted to do, um, you know, infrastructure investment along these lines. He was never able to. The only sort of significant piece of legislation he passed was the tax cuts uh, in 2017. But, you know, what Biden is doing is trying to put this vision into effect. Um, and it is it is a stark departure from uh, the bipartisan way in which economic policy was conducted uh, years ago. Um. The January job numbers, to what extent is the eye-popping January jobs number of 500,000-plus net new jobs created in one month the fruits of these Biden bills and subsidies? So it is the hangover of the COVID stimulus, right? So you had trillions of dollars being injected into the economy, which I think a lot of people would agree were necessary to stave off the consequences of the lockdown and its economic uh, effects. But, you know, what we've seen, the problem with if, if you add that into the supply shocks is that you've produced inflation and the Federal Reserve has been trying to get that under control by raising interest rates. So the Federal Reserve actually probably looks at these numbers and thinks that, you know, it hasn't tightened enough. Um, and and it might continue to increase rates um, as a result. Now, you mentioned um, the tech layoffs and, and how to think about those. And, and it's interesting, you know, Facebook, sorry, it's called Meta now, but everyone forgets, <laughs> forgets to say that, um, you know, on, on in November, they announced that they were uh, cutting 13% of their workforce, um, which is 11,000 jobs. And, you know, in 2016, Facebook as a whole only had roughly that many employees. I mean, these companies went on a huge hiring spree um, over the course of the pandemic. And a lot of the time, and what we're seeing now is them moving back to levels of employment that they had in 2021 or 2020. Mike in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mike. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I am interested in learning um, if your guest believes that Biden's economic agenda, the successes that he's seen over the past year or two, um, if that has the ability to be counter cyclical to any upcoming slowdown and what that would mean politically. All right. As a Washington bureau chief, you are being asked for the first time in this segment to put your politics uh, hat on as well as your economist hat. Um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, countercyclical means that basically if there's a, a downturn in the economy that, um, that these policies will be able to kind of push, uh, push the economy out of that rut. And I think that they, they will, right. You know, the traditional thing you do if you are in a depression, uh, this is sort of Keynes's idea is that you spend money and, and stimulate demand and get yourself out of it. That's what, um, the idea was for Barack Obama stimulus after the great recession. Um, the problem is not so much whether or not it'll be counter cyclical if, if we do have a recession, but whether or not, um, it produces inflation in, in the near term, which is the, the issue that, that we're running into is not whether the economy is, is, uh, is going too slow. It's whether it's going too fast and, and is too hot. Um, so, you know, actually, and I think the, the pace of spending is, is meted out over the next 10 years, such that 
um, the idea is that it won't uh, exacerbate inflation. But definitely, if if things were to sour in the economy as a whole, um, you would expect some of these subsidies to help uh, provide some lift. What's that 10-year economic subsidy number? You were getting at it before. Do you have it at the tip of your tongue, uh, tip of your fingers? I know it's something like 0.5% of GDP per year. Um, you know, and if you multiply that by GDP, you'll get the number. Uh, I, I think I you have... had said something like 250 billion uh, for subsidies uh, for the semiconductor industry. Yeah, am I remembering yeah. that right? And that's over yeah. how many years? That's over the next 10 years. Yeah. So I was thinking, if that's true, isn't that an incredible bargain for the taxpayers? For all those jobs, I mean, the government is spending eight hundred fifty billion. You said two hundred fifty over ten years. The government is spending eight hundred fifty billion this year alone, just for the Pentagon, and twice that much this year alone for Medicare and Social Security. So, twenty-five billion this year for a generational reset of the whole economy and to revive manufacturing if it works. That's an epical bargain. Well, it, it depends on whether or not this money creates jobs only or whether or not it, it incentivizes the private sector to, to do more. Um, and, you know, if it does do that, then obviously it is a big, a big change. But, you know, if you divide, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, the 98 billion that uh, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is going to spend, if you divide that by the million jobs that um, it's expected to create, um, that's a governmental subsidy of $100,000 a worker, which is which is a lot. Um, you know, hopefully it, it manifests itself in 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 innovations that that produce a sort of more productive workforce. But on the whole, direct subsidy of, of, of governmental jobs can be quite expensive. For now, we thank Idris Kaloon, Bureau Chief in D.C. for The Economist, for talking through some of the uh, economic backdrop um, for Bidenomics and the speech that he might give tonight. It was a great conversation. Thank you very, very much. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.